Hello and welcome to Being Well, I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. In our last conversation together, we talked about needs. Everyone has them, but they're not always easy to admit or come to terms with or fulfill. We explored common needs, what we can do to identify our unique needs, accepting our needs, and even how we can help other people meet their needs, assuming that that's something that we want to do. Today, we're going to be focusing on one of those needs in particular, our need for connection. During this time of increased isolation for many people in the United States and around the world, our needs for connection are harder to meet than ever. And to make things even more complicated, there are a lot of social forces and political rifts that have divided people further that have been encouraged in ways large and small by different powerful groups of people. So today I want to talk about meeting this need on the scale of the very local, our individual interactions with other people. To help us do that, I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, does this all sound good to you? It sounds great to me, and I'm really excited about getting into the micro-attunements, those little things that are the underlying music of interactions, which then build relationships, that happen over very brief periods, over mm -hmm. a second or two or three, or even fractions of a second, that when they go well, there's a feeling of dancing, in effect, well, with whoever you're interacting with. That's a metaphor you probably could relate to as a dancer <laughs> yourself. And also, and when they go badly, it really feels like there's a kind of grinding of gears. Yeah. So I'm very interested in getting into this, which is grounded in both some deep biology and some really neat recent um, science. Yeah, so you've actually probably already alluded to your answer here in that answer there. But there are plenty of interactions that we have with other people, like potential moments of connection that could be perfectly pleasant, but they don't necessarily satisfy our need for connection for some reason. They're nice, they're passing, we don't retain them, or hey, even worse than that, they're kind of a real pain in the butt. So what are the characteristics to you of moments or interactions where that need is actually really satisfied for somebody? Like what's different about them? Well, I think your question is really deep. In effect, you're saying, what's the difference between interactions, let's say, that tick all the boxes in terms of the form, and yet at the end of the day, the feeling wasn't there? Mm -hmm. That's one way. Totally, great way to put it. And I'd like to get at that in a couple of steps. First, we have different connection needs. The kind of connection needs, let's say, I have with you are different, say, than I have with someone who's a casual friend or a professional acquaintance, it's a different kind of thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and so part one here is that our interactions with other people are situated functionally. So for, a, let's say, an infant or a toddler, that relationship is situated with a caregiver and vice versa. People who work together, their relationships and their interactions are in particular settings that have particular pragmatic needs and roles. And it's important to ground or embed our relationships in the real world with all of its pragmatic complexity, rather than imagining them on some sort of etheric plane of soulmate, 
in the purple energy realms. Mm-hmm. Although nothing wrong with that. <laughs> nothing wrong with that. But we can all you can aspire get, to that. But hey, hey, this is cool. <laughs> I, I mean, it's a place, seriously, I'm not trying to make fun of it. It's more like, but most of the time, yeah. Like right now, you and I are interacting around getting something done. Yeah. And so many of our relationships are about that. So what's appropriate for meeting the needs for connection has to do with the situation. And very often, connection is a means to the end of the situation. So what is our cat? Mm. We have a cat, mainly our daughters, but he has us, the famous <laughs> pistachio. And he's a real communicator. He'll walk over to that door that's closed and he'll start meowing. And there's a certain tone. And it starts out, meow, mm, mm-hmm. which essentially is, I'm here, dummy. Door's closed. You know what to do. And then <laughs> ignore him for a while. His meow becomes more and more plaintive. Meow, meow. Interspersed with, meow. He's letting loose with a little anger. Then he goes back to plaintive. Mm-hmm. You can just, the whole emotional spectrum is happening. He needs to know that I, you know, as primary door opener, is related to him. And it's a means to the end of getting the darn door open for him. Okay. So mm-hmm. I just want to make that point that sometimes the relationship is both a means to the end of other needs being met and an end in itself. And there are, of course, certain situations where the relationship, the connection, the interaction is an end unto itself. It's entirely an end unto itself. All right, great. Mm -hmm. So uh, thanks for putting up with that kind of place setting here (laughs) for what we're going to talk about now. Yeah. So just to kind of drill into that a little bit more, one of the things that you alluded to is the way in which children can relate to a caregiver. And I think it's a great proxy for so many of our relationships that happen later in life, because One of the things that I said to a friend recently is that the six-year-old is still inside of you. It didn't go anywhere. Mm. It's still there. It's just a matter of how in contact you are with that part of yourself, that child part, because they don't vanish. They just kind of transform over time until all of a sudden you wake up one day and it turns out that you're 33, speaking from personal experience here, as opposed to six years old. So one of the famous experiments here that you turned me on to was this work by this uh, guy named Edward Tronick. I hope I'm saying that correctly. It's called the still face experiment. And basically, it's an incredibly simple experiment. A child or a baby, a nine-month-old, a 12-month-old, something like that, is basically held up in front of a parent, or they sit in front of a parent or their primary caregiver. And the parent sits there completely non-responsively. They have a still face, hence the name of the experiment. And what you see is that initially, the baby is really engaged with the parent. They're reaching out, they're making sounds toward them, they might be kind of happy, kind of playful, whatever, engaged. And then very quickly, within a minute, certainly within 90 seconds, the baby's behavior starts to really change. They become much more plaintive, they get confused, sometimes they start yawning or like giving the parent kind of a side eye. And then what happens is by the time that three minutes or so rolls around, most of the babies become essentially withdrawn and they appear very sad and like you've essentially created a depressed baby in about three minutes. And that's how long it takes. Collapse and despair. Yeah, they're just totally disconnected at that point from the primary caregiver and it just took three minutes. 
And we can think in our own life about how strange it would be if you were with like a parent or a good friend and they just like stared at you still faced for three minutes and maybe you could get a feeling for that yourself. But I think that it indicates one of the key characteristics of interactions that are satisfying to us, which is the sense of engagement with another person. Active engagement and then active emotional response to whatever we tossed out to them. The baby is expecting to be played with, whether it's literal play or it's play on a more kind of metaphorical level where there's a interplay of emotions and sensations and interaction between the baby and the caregiver. And for me, when I think back to really fulfilling interactions, they didn't feel like monologues. You know, they didn't feel like I was sitting there taking notes. They didn't feel like the other person could not receive my emotions. There was an interplay, there was an interaction that felt successful and positive with another human. All right on to kind of hit the highlights there. Yeah, totally. And so now I'm going to do to you, which you so effectively often do to me or with me. Summarize the summary. Let's go. Summarize what you said. Yeah. Attention, availability, responsiveness. And what does it feel like to be with someone who's giving you their full attention while being emotionally available and who is responding skillfully to what you're saying? So if you're talking about pizza, they don't suddenly misunderstand that you're talking about pudding. They hear you, right? And when we give other people those three, even if we don't agree with each other, interestingly, and even if we don't acquiesce or uh, give each other what the other person wants, let's say, as long as you're delivering full attention while being reasonably available to them, given the pragmatic situatedness of the interaction and the relationship. And also if you're responding in some reasonably skillful ways, like being able to say back what you hear them saying and you're accurate, more or less, Mm -hmm. that's gonna go a long way towards satisfying our fundamental needs for relationships and, and for something reasonably good in interactions. And you can think about those three, attention, availability, responsiveness, grounded in hunter-gatherer bands, in which members of the band needed to know that others were paying attention, were available if they called out, and they were open to receiving the emotional weight, the gravity even, of what we were communicating or signaling or requesting. And there was an appropriate kind of responsiveness. It was attuned. It was in rapport with whatever it was that we were communicating. Yeah, to move that into kind of the practical here for people a little bit, You can think maybe about the relationships that you have with others where those characteristics are present versus the relationships that you have with people where you feel like those characteristics aren't present. They aren't giving you their full attention when they're interacting with you. They're not being completely responsive to what you're saying. They're certainly not being particularly attentive to the emotional current that's running underneath the whole thing. And you don't feel like they're very open to being affected or changed by you in any kind of real- They're not available. They're not available in any kind of real meaningful way. And it's like, okay, those are two very clearly distinct categories of relationships. And man, like just speaking from personal experience here, one of the things that I've seen as a model of failure over and over and over again is people who try to get blood from the stone. You know, people who keep on trying to squeeze those relationships where those factors are not in place, even if they have been clearly asked for again and again, it is very challenging to resuscitate those relationships because they're just not fulfilling your need for connection. Right. So let's talk about attention for a moment here. Great. Yeah. We could start by imagining what is it like or bringing it up when you feel like you're with someone who's giving you 
their full attention. Mm -hmm. What are they doing that gives you the sense that they're giving you their full attention? Probably there's quite a lot of eye contact or eyes to your face, not so much that they're boring into your pupils in a way that would seem a little invasive and Borg, join the Borg. <laughs> you know, like really kind of creepy. But they're really zeroed in. Their eyes are not glancing around. If their eyes move around, they come back quickly. Mm-hmm. Often posturally, they are facing you. Clearly, you are in the foreground of their attentional field. They're not staring off into space. They're not doing other kinds of things that require skilled attention. Maybe they're just, they're driving, let's say, but you can tell they're completely with you even while they're kind of automatically rolling down the highway. Turn it the other way. We've definitely had some conversations about this, about what it is to be really mindfully present with another person while managing the natural tendencies of the thought processes to be distracted by one thing or another, including bubbling up from inside. And also the ways in which I had a teacher who used the term, the bodily sacrifice of attention. Hmm. Sacrifice, including the notion of it as a sacred act. Sacrifice, sacre fike, something like that. And so it's the bodily sacrifice of attention. That can feel kind of scary. That can feel kind of exhausting. And you can start to think, oh, if I'm giving them my full attention, they're going to think I'm agreeing with them Mm -hmm. or approving of what they're saying or committing myself in some way. So it's important to be really clear. I'm autonomous over here, autonomous attention, really sustained, deep, autonomous attention. Mm -hmm. That's what we're talking about here. So what we're already kind of starting to talk about here, and I think that that was great, is this idea of attunement. One of the biggest contributors to the success of therapy, as you know, if you listen to my little 15-minute explanation of it a little while ago, is the bond that's formed between the therapist and the client. This is sometimes called the therapeutic alliance, and it's essentially how connected they feel to each other and how secure they are in that relationship. A big part of that is attunement. A therapist needs to know how to attune or pay attention to another person. And attunement has a lot of different definitions, like how reactive somebody is to somebody else's emotional needs and moods, kind of like how we were talking about in the still face experiment. The matching of affect is another definition around it. How closely can you get in sync, essentially, with another person's emotions? But basically, a person who's attuned is going to calibrate their behavior and their responses, their feelings, their demeanor in an interaction based on the other person's emotional state, whether that other person is their child or a client in a therapy session or just like a good friend. And people who are good attuners tend to be more observant and more sensitive. They're good at kind of recognizing emotions and moods, and they care fundamentally about how the person that they're interacting with feels. So as a clinician for many, many years, a big part of your job was basically doing this with people. So I'd love to ask you about kind of your process of it. Like, what are some of the things that you would do to get into this feeling with another person? No, it's interesting. I I think maybe even another exemplar of deep listening, let's call it that. Okay, yeah. Is parenting. Mm -hmm. And people can be aware of the quality of presence. That's another good word here. So with attention, which is where it starts, it's useful to observe that to sustain attention to another person, 
there's typically a kind of a threshold. Four breaths worth half a minute or so. It's almost as if there's a kind of tension rising in the body that makes you want to shift your attention to something else. Like uh, discomfort, absolutely, yeah. And it's helpful to realize, no, I don't need to change the channel here. I can stay with them as the program I'm watching. I probably don't need to jump up and do something. I probably don't need to convince them of something or change the topic. I actually really can keep sustaining attention here autonomously. Mm -hmm. Now, maybe I can't. Maybe, I'm sorry, we gotta be out the door, or sorry, I wasn't really signed up for this deep conversation right now. I, I really just need an answer. Yes, no, it's a 10 second transaction here. Yeah, there are practical considerations and you can have healthy boundaries around this. Both of those are totally true. Yeah, but let's suppose that you really do have the three minutes, maybe five or 10 at most, to truly listen to that other person, to give them the kind of listening that you would wish for yourself if the roles were reversed. It's really helpful to remind yourself that you can continue to give them your attention without a horrible bad thing happening, mm -hmm. okay? So then, once you're sort of signed up for the bodily sacrifice of attention, just being present, mm -hmm. <laughs> okay, what are you paying attention to? And here's where it's helpful to imagine what's coming towards you is almost like a song with lyrics and some melodies and some underlying bass. Bass guitar, drums, the deeper boom, 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 boom of what they're communicating. <laughs> so there's the overt meaning that you're tracking. You're tracking the emotional tones. You're paying attention to that as well, or you're in effect opening your bandwidth of receptive attention to be aware of those elements. And it can feel like that. It can feel like you're opening, you're widening to receive, and there it helps to keep remembering that what's coming at you is like a wind, a breeze that can blow right through you. You don't have to resist it. Mm. You can actually be better at paying attention if you're not resisting what's coming through you, which means in part sometimes sort of resourcing yourself to keep reminding yourself, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. I'm not agreeing to anything here. I'm deeply grounded, I'm still breathing. I can keep paying attention to them over there. You can be over there with them rather than preoccupied over here with me. Yeah, just kind of to support something that you're saying here, I'm so glad that this is actually where you started because certainly in my own experience, when I started moving into not just active listening, but attuned listening, which is really what we're talking about here. And active listening, I am hearing the words that you are saying and I'm really paying attention to them. I'm paying attention to your ideas. I care about what you have to say. Um, I have my own thoughts on this. I'm kind of thinking about my thoughts on this as you're saying the words that you're saying, whatever. It's very like eye-centric. The, the locus of the conversation is like what's coming toward me and it's my own experience of it. Mm. The, the wheels that are churning in my own head. In sort of what I would describe as like attuned listening, that locus moves from being the wheels in my head to this thing that kind of exists between us. Mm -hmm. um, there, there may be the pole of the conversation gets moved from me or from the other person into this kind of shared place in the middle. And when I first started to do that, it actually made me quite uncomfortable, huh. even though my interactions hadn't changed at all. The content was identical, but for some reason, I was just 
getting more uncomfortable with it. And I didn't really have a good... Any idea why? I, I, I didn't have a good justification for this. I wasn't... I'm trying to find the right words for it. I wasn't threatened by what they were saying. They, these were not conversations that were like really threatening to the relationships I was having or something like that. There was just something about it where I essentially felt more at sea in their emotions. Like that's a good way to put it, I think, where I was more affected hmm. by what they were saying. And sometimes I didn't want to be because sometimes they're saying a thing that makes them sad. So now I'm getting sad and I don't want to be sad or whatever it is that we're talking about, you know? And I think that that feeling of discomfort is something that most people experience, but for most of them, it's really subconscious. And it's one of the barriers that we have to that more active and um, attuned participation in a conversation. So I'm just glad that you named that because I actually wasn't even thinking about it going into this conversation, but it's so true. Yeah, I'm really glad you were aware of it. At the extreme, there are people who have a history of highly invasive parenting, abuse of different kinds, or more in just their character structure, their personality structure. There's a vulnerability to experiences of engulfment or drowning or dissociation. It's as, it's as if they fragment their sense of, in a healthy, full sense self, into the mind stream, into the consciousness of another person. Yeah. And there can be really profound, beautiful experiences of that that have, mm -hmm. may have a spiritual or transcendental quality to them with or without psychedelics, let's say. Yeah. But these experiences of the kind that I'm describing are really scary. They're alarming. So that's the extreme version of that. Yeah. Just to flag a couple of things you're, you're saying here just really quickly. The first is that it's good to know what your max capacity is. Yeah. And it's good to be kind to yourself. Like inside all of this, have healthy boundaries. Yep. Don't allow yourself to be subsumed into another person. And if you're somebody who, as you were saying, has a history of experiences here where your boundaries were not respected and where people were exploitative of you and exploitative of your attention in various ways, this is going to naturally be harder for you. And that is okay. Like that doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you or anything like that. Yeah. It just means that you had challenging experiences having to do with this territory. And in order to respect yourself, you might need to draw your lines a little bit more firmly than other people do. And that's totally okay. We're talking about moving more into this practice in a way that is comfortable for you. Yeah, receptive presence, mm -hmm. deep listening, attuned listening. You're over there with them. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. <laughs> However you can do that safely. And paradoxically, we've explored this a lot, mm -hmm. to be able to stay over there with them, it really helps to have a felt sense of grounding over here as you. Absolutely. And I think that that's actually something that made things hard for me sometimes, where earlier on in my progression as a person, I've always had a very strong kind of sense of identity, but it's easy for me to get kind of I'm trying to find a way to put this that's both totally honest and helpful for the conversation. Because like I, I can hold on to my own ideas very strongly, but it's easy for me to get pulled along in another person's emotional wake. And I think that the more that I became kind of comfortable inside of myself with my own emotions and holding on to my own feelings, the more comfortable I became in that relationship because I grew more confident that I wouldn't just be subsumed by the other person. Mm, that's really great for us. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Including the distinction you drew between holding on to your views mm -hmm. while being vulnerable, let's say, to being swept along in the emotional wake of the other person. 
Yeah, and, and I found it easy to have a very strong sense of like, this is what Forrest thinks, but it was more challenging to have a strong sense of this is what Forrest feels. Wow. And what Forrest feels is separate and individuated from the other person, which, mm. you know, has like lovely traits associated with it and made it very easy, quote unquote, for me to move into attunement. But it meant that there was more vulnerability or more risk associated with it for me. So I needed to get like a, that stronger anchor before I felt comfortable doing that. Great stuff. But okay, so that's all of that. Let's return to kind of the, the thought stream that you had a second ago that I interrupted. Oh, that's great. Okay, so we're over there with them, paying attention to, think of it, the word track, the lyrics, maybe the thought track, the ideas, the information going by. Mm -hmm. We're also paying attention to the emotional tone the vibe, maybe we're picking up on some sort of hidden anger. Maybe we're picking up that there's a subtle sense of dismay or sadness in the other person. We're getting the feeling track. And it's also really helpful to pay attention to the body track, to the somatic track, including subtleties of posture, animation or not, energy or not, facial expressions, and especially what are called micro expressions, which in human beings who arguably have perhaps the most expressive face of any animal on the planet, and there's a certain amount of evolution that if you look at the range of facial expressions that are available to a human compared to a chimpanzee or a gorilla, let alone a cat, it's really quite remarkable. And a lot of where the action is for the subtlety and diversity of human facial expressions is around the eyes and especially the perimeter of the eyes on the outside and around the sides of the mouth. And one way you can support what you're paying attention to is to be really aware of subtle shifts of micromuscle movements. Paul Ekman, Dacher Keltner, a number of other people have done some wonderful work in this territory and that will help you get more tuned to another person. You can even watch, if you like, the TV show, Lie to Me. I definitely <laughs> recommend the first season where a lot of this great material was really brought forth in a clear way, in a summary way. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's attention. And that can, you can help yourself and you can really ask yourself, am I sustaining attention? And interestingly, as you become more aware of what it is to give mindful attention, to another person, then you become a little clearer and more concrete about what, if it's appropriate, you want to ask for, for mindful attention coming back to you the other way. Then there's availability. Mm -hmm. And think about people who are, let's say, always just impatiently waiting for you to stop talking so they can rebut what you had to say. Mm -hmm. Yep. Or they yeah. can bring up, well, what about this? Or that's, you know, bringing some disinformation from left field. It's the classic line, they're not listening to you, they're just waiting for their turn to speak. Yeah, that's right, that's right. You just don't get it. Or if you feel like there's someone who, every topic is at bottom about them. Mm, uh -huh. Even if some of what they're doing is trying to help you or they're, they're trying to be of service. There's some self-absorption in it, everything is referenced through I, all of that stuff. Yeah, you know, the classic kind of Hollywood line, you know, enough about me, tell me about you. What did you think about my last movie? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's very egocentric, yes, it's self-referential. Yeah. And you know what that's like when you're with that other person, or maybe you're with someone who, they have a good heart, they have good intentions, 
but they are just flooded with their own issues. Their house is burning down. They're in physical pain. They're awash in grief. They're deeply concerned about food insecurity. They're worried about their next paycheck. They're in Texas and they don't know where when the lights are going to come on. Something like that. Yeah, totally. And so there's not much availability there. So major example of this is these days often you'll see kids with their parents out at a restaurant or in a playground environment. And the kid is trying to get the attention of the parent who's busy on their phone. Mm -hmm. And more and more people are starting to talk about this. The parent or the parent is talking with the kid with 5% of their attention, while 95% of where their head is really at is somewhere else in that conversation with another parent or checking their emails or playing Tetris on their phone. And we know what it feels like to be kind of fended off. It's a, it's a form of dismissiveness, which tends to promote avoidant styles of insecure attachment to people of various kinds. And to reinforce just part of what you're saying here, this kind of returns to what we were talking about at the very beginning about the still face experiment mm -hmm. and how particularly children from an extremely young age, like such a young age that we're actually not totally sure what the underlying mechanisms of how they're processing that still face are, because like we can't interview them and we don't want to jam too many of them into an MRI. So for mm -hmm. obvious ethical reasons, like are very attuned to another person, particularly their primary caregiver. So if that's happening to a nine-month-old, you can imagine what's happening to a nine-year-old mm -hmm. and how attentive they are to the availability of their parent and the ways in which they're being subtly dismissed by this other person. Yeah, exactly. So if we were to bring it back to ourselves to help ourselves be a deep listener yeah, an attuned listener, mm -hmm. it would be Am I able to really be over there with you rather than caught up in my internal preoccupations? Is there, in terms of availability or receptivity, is there a kind of don't know attitude? Am I already convinced you're a fool? Or over here, is there a beginner's mind, a kind of openness, a don't know, not yet jumping to a conclusion about that other person? Is there even a felt sense of kind of spaciousness? Like that's a kind of availability, right? The suitcase that's empty is available for all kinds of clothing and cool stuff. Can we come to other people with a certain quality of, as I say, spaciousness, not knowingness, and capacity to not be consumed with our own issues? One last little subtle quality of this that I'm interestingly exploring more and more myself these days is this feeling of being, of the other person feeling almost a little transparent or gauzy, kind of foamy. They're spacious in a lacy, foamy kind of way. They're there, but hmm. there's not a lot of positionality or self or ego you're bumping into. There's consciousness over there. They're present. There's awareness. Their feet are on the ground. They're, they're here. Maybe they're sipping some coffee while they talk. But there's this nice sort of foamy, selfless quality in them. So I just want to kind of mark that. Related to that, I think that one of the things that you're speaking to here, and I would love to know your opinion on it, is has to get to this idea of rigidity, which is what you're sort of pushing back on by that idea of sort of foaminess mm. or insubstantiality yeah. or whatever you want to say. Where for us to really attune to somebody else, 
we need to be open to being changed by them. Uh-huh. We yeah. can't just be so firmly entrenched in our own selfing that there's nothing to do there, that there's essentially no purpose to having this conversation. At the very least, we need to be open to having our emotions be shifted to like a warm and loving and friendly place at the bare minimum in order to have any kind of sort of an attuned conversation, if not allowing our emotions to be shifted to toward feelings of empathy and sympathy for somebody who's sharing that they're going through a challenging time. And I think that, again, that was part of what was challenging for me when I was a bit younger and kind of first getting into this material. And to be honest about it, is remains challenging to me in extents to this day. It's hard to feel changed by somebody else, mm. particularly if their experience is one that's associated with the more challenging emotions like anger or sadness or whatever else. I tend to naturally kind of push back against those emotions, as I think many people do, because they feel uncomfortable for me. So the more comfort that we can get just at baseline with the idea, even just kind of theoretical idea of being changed by another person, the more effective we're going to be at attuning to them, I think. Yeah, that's great. Biologically, and you can really see this in infants, interestingly, if there's one thing that evolution, the processes of evolution really, really hone in on in the forge, it has to do with reproduction and everything around reproduction, and then the process of keeping those who've been reproduced alive. And the mammalian evolutionary strategy is not the insect strategy or the fish strategy or the octopus strategy of having hundreds, if not hundreds of thousands of little eggs that become little creatures, a tiny fraction of whom will ever survive. The difference here is to make a deep investment in one or two or three or four, let's say offspring, or a dozen or so offspring at most, who then have offspring who've survived themselves. It's a very different strategy. So in that kind of context, then it becomes extremely important for a human child who has an extremely long childhood, the longest of any species on the planet, Mm -hmm. to matter to their parent. And what's the foundation of mattering is that I exist for you. One of the things that's so catastrophic that you see in the still face experiment, especially with the younger infants, more toward nine-month-olds, six-month-olds like that, is that they collapse in despair. It's very disorganizing. And yeah, totally. A lot of these experiments are then halted really quickly. And then the children are super soothed and it's it's okay. And it, it, it all is okay as long as there's a repair afterward. <laughs> but that one to three minutes is really pretty horrible for that kid. Yeah. And it's horrible because of our biology. We need to know, first and foremost, that we exist for the other person. So if you think about these three things we're talking about as major themes, attention, availability, responsiveness. And we'll get to responsiveness last as the third aspect of attunement here. Great. It's as if we each have a question in a thought balloon above our head, even if it's non-verbally expressed, but still very real for an infant. First is, do I exist for you? Are you paying attention? Am I on your radar? Do you see me? Do I even exist for you? And then second, related to availability, the question is, Will you receive me? Will you let me in? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? In other words, it's kind of like by metaphor, attention is like, do you hear me banging on the door? Mm-hmm. Availability is, will you open the door? And then in terms of responsiveness, 
will you hurt me or help me? Mm -hmm. Very simple in terms of what it is that I need, what it is I'm asking for, what's happening here. These are really, really deep questions. And I think it's very valuable. It's been super valuable for me to take this, you know, kind of conceptual material maybe and bring it right down into relationship. Personally, ask yourself, hmm, am I giving other people that kind of receptive listening, that deep listening? And also, do you want to maybe ask some of the important people in your life for more of the kind of listening that would really be good for you? In the interest of just kind of keeping us moving along here, the final kind of condition or trait that you're talking about for good attunement is responsiveness. The first word that kind of appeared in my mind when you said that was co-regulation, like co-regulating another person. Uh, would you mind kind of explaining what that is? Okay, so co-regulating is a big term these days. A lot of it's rooted in the work of C. Porges, who we've had on the pod, mm -hmm. and also other people. It's the notion that, especially in early, early childhood, the immature nervous system of the infant, including, let's just say, around sleep cycles, because when the infant is born, it doesn't really know what the circadian rhythm is. You know, in their time zone on planet Earth. And it sure doesn't know the circadian rhythms, you know, the sleep cycle of their parents. And what starts to happen is that parents begin to, the term is entrain. They draw the child into their rhythm so it's not discordant, hopefully. There's more and more of a harmony. And when there isn't that kind of harmony between the parent's sleep cycle and the child's sleep cycle, especially when that's extended over weeks and months, that's actually very wearing on the physical health, let alone mental health of the parents and the kid, and can sometimes move in the direction of harsh, punitive, even abusive parenting to get the kid to quit crying because mm. you just have to go to sleep, let's say. So that's an example kind of in the extreme of co-regulation. Um, you can see it in ways in which the heart rate and the breathing rate of a parent will draw a child into that same rhythm. A little story for me, before we had kids, your mom used to do body work on people, as you know, heller work. And one day I was upstairs in our apartment in Sausalito before you were born, working away. And Jan had a client who surprisingly brought this young child in, this little baby who was probably ballpark six months old. And the baby was fussing and crying and the mom wanted to have the session. And so they said, well, Rick, would you watch the baby? And I had not had a lot of experience with babies before. I'd had a lot of experience with children, including pretty young children as a camp counselor, like first graders, but a six month old is really different than a six year old. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so I, I wanted to help out and I was challenged. Okay. Can I help this baby sleep? And so I sat in this chair and nothing worked to help this baby stop fussing. And I was upstairs, but I just could internally feel the mom understandably getting more and more agitated that her kid was still crying after, you know, a few minutes still had gone by. And I just started really slowing down my breathing and really going into a very zen, very relaxed state in my body while being very aware of this, I think a little boy. And within a minute, he stopped crying. Mm. And within another minute, he was sound asleep. <laughs> and it happened, I think, because I was co-regulating him. 
I was regulating myself because I was getting cranked up and upset and stressed and freaked mm-hmm. out. And I calmed myself down immensely, which then sucked him into my slipstream. Yeah. And then set me up, of course. Ta-da! When Jan and her client came upstairs and showered me with praise. <laughs> the baby whisperer. Mm-hmm. And I feel great. Yeah, I feel great. Yeah, now it helped it actually helped me be a little more confident, in fact, about when you came along. <laughs> <laughs> Looking like a great perspective father, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. So to just contribute a little bit to what you were saying there, co-regulation basically acknowledges that our interactions are systems, mm-hmm. right? That there's a system that's happening right now between me and you as we have this conversation. And I'm doing little things to regulate you, and you're doing little things to regulate me. And this is all unfolding in real time as we're having this interaction. And what this means is that nothing happens independently, fundamentally. In a truly co-regulated system, I have an emotional shift that you have a little bit of attentiveness to, so you make a small change to your behavior, which then affects my emotions, which then push on your emotions in a little way, and so on, and so on, and so on. It's this dynamic process that's happening between two people. And so to me, that's an example of being like really, truly responsive to somebody else when we are both participating in that action of kind of regulating each other as a conversation is going on. Yeah, all great. And here's where I'll sort of offer a slightly divergent take, kind of as an add-on. Yeah, sure. The word regulation is interesting. I mean, it it implies a fairly high level of control. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're regulating the car as we roll on down the freeway. We're in charge of it, Mm -hmm. you know? And there's a flow of mutual influence, Mm -hmm. which might be a fuzzier word, and Also, if we were to think about the factors, let's say, that lead to the next moment of experiencing and acting for person A, and we put those factors into two piles, one pile having to do with internal processes in A, and the other pile having to do with external influences coming from B. Hmm. And in terms of what happens next, how often is that the result really of internal processes in A? How often is that the result of the influences, even the regulatory influences coming from B? Generally speaking, I think for most people, most of the time, uh, the great bulk of what affects what they experience and what they do in the next moment comes from inside themselves. Hmm. And so I think it's important to not overestimate and make more of a deal out of co-regulation then it really is the case. And I I do think that in the FAD structure, the FADs in psychotherapy, there's been a real swing toward an overestimate of the relational factors for the average person, certainly, in how they turn out and what they experience and what they do in the next moment, while acknowledging certainly that there's certain situations in which what certain people are feeling and doing in the next moment is highly affected, including very beneficially affected sometimes by what their, let's say, therapist is doing. Yeah, I mean, well, I, you're about to start a start a clinician fight here, Dad. I didn't realize that we were going to wander into like dangerous, you know, research territory during this conversation. But I, I mean, I think that like to kind of grind down into what you're saying, there are two processes that are happening at the same time. And it's tough to say how much each of them is influencing our behavior in any given moment. I think that my bias is to largely agree with you and to basically sign up to like, yeah, I think that internal processes drive a lot of the interaction. 
but man, I've had so many experiences of being deeply affected by the emotions or regulation or whatever of another person. So like sure. maybe one of them is a 10 on a scale of one to 10 and the other one's just a nine on a scale of one to 10, but they're both pretty high up there, at least in my experience. Oh, I think that's exactly right. And yeah, great. what I'm in effect a little bit pushing against comes from my nature as a very kind of independent, introverted, high autonomy mm -hmm. kind of person who bristles at the notion of being regulated by somebody yeah. else on the one hand. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand, uh, <laughs> there are people, and I know some of them really well as friends who are famous therapists, who are themselves yeah. highly extroverted. They're interpersonal savants. Mm -hmm. They're really attuned to everybody. And they love being regulated by others. They love influencing others as well. It's just great. The danger is for people like me to expound a universal theory of introverted, autonomous isolationism, interpersonal isolationism, right? <laughs> we are all islands. <laughs> sure, sure. It's equally bad though, for people who by their nature are highly connected to say, we are all one single continent, mm, mm -hmm. co-regulating each other, through neural Wi-Fi. All fair. Yeah. All and, super fair. And I think that's yeah. that's that's really just about it. And it reminds yeah, me. Yeah, no, a great distinction. <laughs> and it reminds totally me. Totally fair distinction. Yeah. Of this funny moment with Jung, Carl Jung, of all people. Mm -hmm. I saw this film. It was toward the end of his life. I think it was black and white film shot in the mid-1950s in England. And he was being interviewed by a number of English psychiatrists, British psychiatrists, about his theories, his approaches, and his break with Freud. Mm -hmm. And toward the very end, someone asked him, so Dr. Jung, from all that you know now, who do you think was right, Freud or you? Or some kind of question like that. And Jung gave what for me is just a marvelous reply. He paused, he reflected, he said, well, and essentially he said, I think there are people out there who have a Freudian psychology. And for them, that model really works and they they should pursue that kind of path. And me, he kind of smiled in his twinkly Swiss, brilliant <laughs> way. I have a Jungian psychology. <laughs> and for those who have that sort of psychology, maybe, 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 maybe a maybe, different way of doing it. You know, one or two okay. things yeah. I've kind of offered to them. <laughs> So totally I, fair. I yeah. As a way to understand this here and, and to be modest, yeah. hopefully ourselves as teachers in how we talk about our stuff. Yeah, I thought that's a great that's a great framework. But okay, responsiveness. responsiveness. Yeah, go ahead. I, I took us down a whole rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, I want to be responsive to your clock ticking. I could tell. <laughs> <laughs> Come back, Dad. You you wandered off. <laughs> Back. <laughs> we, we went down a co-regulation rabbit hole what? there, but I think a useful one for people. Okay, that's good. Okay, responsiveness. That's where, just imagine how freaky it is. So if nobody's paying attention to you, it's as if you don't exist for them. And then how freaky it might also be if they're paying attention to you, but there's no sense whatsoever that they're open or, to you or available to you in any way, shape or form. That they know you're there banging on their door and they're behind the door saying, I don't care. I'm not going to open the door. And then what would it be like if they're listening carefully, they seem fully signed up for the interaction, and you're talking about how you really didn't like something that happened in a business meeting, and you really would like something different. You're making a request here for the future. 
And then when you're done talking, they pause and then they say, you know, what we're having for lunch today is a choice of pizza, ice cream sundaes, or chow mein. What would you like? You'd want to strangle them. <laughs> Especially because you sort of got sucked in. Like they seem to be paying attention yeah, and they seem totally. so nice, mm -hmm. but they're not responsive in any clear way. And you can imagine that example at the level of ranging children. They want X. In my family, uh, you know, I felt a lot, my parents, they were responsive to what they thought I should want rather than to what I actually did want. Yeah, and you see that all the time, I think. I think that that's a fantastic example, not just in our, I mean, I think it shows up constantly in parent-child relationships, but also just in our interpersonal relationships. The number of times that you have a conversation with somebody and you think that you've been extremely clear, and, and let's assume for this example that you actually have been extremely yeah. clear yeah. about what you need and what you're looking for from this interaction, and they say, okay, 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 and then they end up 30 minutes later giving you something where you're like, whoa, this is just not what I asked for, but it came through the paradigm of what that person was kind of translating it into, and their assumption of like what you should want. Yeah, they were paying attention, mm -hmm. they were kind of available, they weren't completely totally, yeah. withdrawing and gone, but wow, they just weren't responsive. Yep. So this is a whole conversation, but one of the things that's been one of the most useful questions I've ever stumbled on is what would it look like if you got what you want from me? Mm -hmm. As concrete and operational as it can be. Now, maybe it's concrete and operational in terms of an external behavior, like I'd like you to put the cap back on the toothpaste tube every time you use it, et cetera. Or it could be, you know, when I speak in this kind of slightly softer way, I would really appreciate it if you would have a little light bulb go off inside your own mind that there's something important here. And I'd really love it if you would fully show up for me, if only for a minute or two or three in a row. So that's, that's the ask. Okay, what would it look like if you got what you want from me? That's so helpful in terms of when we're the one who is responding to others to try to clarify what is it they're wanting. Is it about how to load the dishwasher or is it about that we are aligned and joined in the great matter of raising a family? Is it about loading the dishwasher or is it really about you don't like anything that feels like being bossed around? right? What is the true stake on the table? So there's a process of trying to identify. Sometimes it's really clear that, you know, Pistachio, that's his name, just wants me to open the door. <laughs> and so skillful responsiveness in his world is very concrete and kind of binary. Yo, big monkey, human, did you open the door or not? I can't <laughs> open that patio door. You got the opposable yeah. thumb. You know, yes, no, fine. He opened the door. We're good to go. Other people, responsiveness is more complex, but I think to be responsive to others, it helps to establish your autonomy first. I don't have to give this to you. I may. Mm -hmm. I want to find out what I can give you at the upper bound of what's reasonable for me, but I'm not going to be bossed around by you. And then in that frame, clarify what it would actually look like if they got what they wanted, and then go to the maximum that you can reasonably agree to for all kinds of reasons from morality and service and benevolence at one end to enlightened self-interest, get some off your back at the other end. 
what would it look like if you got what you wanted from me? Okay, there you go. Yeah, and just to add a little bit onto what you're saying there, which I think was super well said and is totally right on, this is part of the reason that communication is so important. And in terms of what we can actually do, both in terms of being a good listening conversational partner and a effective getter of what we need her, uh, we need to both be able to ask that question to somebody else. What would it look like if I gave you what you wanted? What specifically are you looking for from me? Not because we're trying to be legalistic or because we're trying to back them into a corner because we're trying to prove a point about how they don't actually know what they want, whatever, but just practically like, wow, what is a A plus outcome from for you here? And importantly, sometimes where you're having more grievance-based conversation, does an A-plus outcome exist? And that's something that I've found myself sometimes in interactions with other people where they're bothered about something that's going on out in the world. And I say some version of, okay, what would a really great version of this thing look like to you? Mm. And they say, wow, I can't really think of one whoa, that's really reframing. That really puts a lot of clarity into the conversation about what is and isn't acceptable for that person. And in much the same way, we need to be able to articulate our own wants and needs. And that relates to the previous conversation that we had on identifying our needs and finding ways to fulfill them. Yeah, maybe to kind of end on this point, which is the good news, right? Because it could seem, to me, it's actually really good news to just kind of break it down. Be attentive, right? Have a certain quality of openness and spaciousness in yourself in terms of availability. And then look for the maximum reasonable that you can respond to. If you do those things, you will be someone that other people will trust, want to be with, want to hire, want to form friendships with, want to be romantic with. You will be that kind of person. Because of course, mm -hmm. that's the kind of person yeah. you would want to be with yourself. And then the frosting on this cake, totally. that's a pretty good cake already with good news, I think. Like it's not that hard. You have to <laughs> intend to do it, but the doing of it is actually not that hard. Very often, there's this highly leveraged asymmetry of effort to pay off in responding to the wants of other people. Very often, what would be an A plus in terms of how it would feel to another person, or certainly no less than an A minus in how it would feel to another person if you did actually deliver the goods, if you were responsive to them in maximally reasonable ways. For them, it was like, wow, that's great. I'm so glad you did it. Yet for us, often in terms of the effort scale, it's like a C in the sense that it doesn't take a lot of effort. Mm-hmm doesn't actually take that much effort. Yeah. Very often, I know. Um, it could be just a word of praise. It could be a word of sympathy. It could be joining with them that, yeah, that totally does suck, or it was really rotten what that other person did to you, genuinely, genuinely, because that's how you see it. Or it's like, oh, oh, okay, next time I won't do that. Next time I'll, or from now on, I'll remember to bolt the door on the way out because it makes you feel better when you're home alone. Fine. Yeah, totally. And yet for them, whew, big deal. Isn't that cool? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what it kind of gets to is something we've explored certainly plenty on the podcast, the reasons why we do and don't do things, you know, because so much of the time using like bolting the door as an example on the way out, 
the cost is 10 seconds to stick the key in the lock and bolt the door. But the reason that people don't do it isn't the cost of the time, it's the conflict over feeling like they were doing something wrong in the past or feeling like the person is too much of a whiner or whatever. It's our whole psycho-emotional constellation that's associated with this thing. And then it's about kind of coming to terms with that and saying, okay, is my relationship with this person more important to me than preserving my own sense of rightness, essentially? Because the cost is zero, effectively, 10 seconds to turn the key in the lock. And yeah, you're going to miss sometimes, and they should be nice to you when you miss because you're doing your best. But like the actual costs are virtually zero. So then it just gets layered into all that psycho-emotional stuff, and that's where the real costs lie for people. Great, 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 great. So I'd like to summarize our conversation. Oh, great. By saying that wow, Forrest is now going to summarize our conversation. <laughs> <laughs> wow, well, you just stole my job there for me, Dad. So you're totally right. I am going to summarize this conversation, but I'm going to do one little thing before we summarize the conversation. And that's just to say this. So to echo something that we've said already, but I want to say it again because I want to really reinforce this, all of this exists in a universe where you are meeting your own needs. All of this exists in a universe where you are fulfilling the needs of your healthy boundaries with other people. All of it exists in a universe where you are also getting what you want from these relationships with others. This is not about pushing down your own needs. This is not about establishing a codependent relationship with somebody else. This is not about constantly giving while you receive nothing in return. It's good to be clear about the fact that wow, you aren't going to get what we talked about today from that many other people. You're just not. Like, that's not how most people interact. But that doesn't mean that you have to be restricted or restrained about giving it to other people. You can give it to anyone. But you do need to do some calculus over your own effort and your own desires and what you want from those relationships with others. There is no moral imperative to be an attuned listener to everyone who walks down the street but it's good to cultivate the skills so you have them to offer when you want to offer them. So I just want to add that as kind of like a little cherry on top of this whole conversation so we're firmly situated in kind of right effort here. Does that sound good to you, Dad? I think that's a really important point, Forrest. In general, and also going back to where I started about how interactions are situated, mm. this interaction between you and me mm -hmm. is situated in a larger social context of power and privilege, including related to being white and male, both of which you and I are, as yeah, well as totally. I could even add further, white, mm -hmm. male, and able to speak in the dialect of sort of educated, relatively affluent professional people. Okay. Yeah, totally. Mm -hmm. When you and I give other people this kind of attuned presence, because of the situatedness of our roles in society, very often, in my experience at least, other people sort of settle down and become less demanding, we could say. Hmm. Or they don't start suddenly taking advantage of that quality of emotional availability. Sure, totally. Et cetera. I can certainly imagine other people, particularly women, maybe also people of color, who when they offer that kind of receptive availability, kind of a given over to the other person, it 
is contextualized in really, really different ways. Absolutely. Yep. Understandably can feel very different for them. You know, yet again, they're being subordinated. They're subordinating themselves, you know, et cetera. Could feel that way. And also others could construe it in that way. Inappropriately in a variety of different ways. Absolutely. And then take advantage of it, be exploitive around it, or use it to perpetuate a view of that other person as inherently subordinate. So for me, absolutely, that is the uh, cement, the, the gooey cement and the foundation that this whole conversation rests on. And related to other things that we've talked about throughout the conversation, it's really easy for me to be situated in a place where I can listen to somebody else speak and I can feel really confident that I don't have to give them what they're asking for. Yeah, I can feel very safe saying no. A lot of other people can't do that for a wide variety of different reasons. And to give the obvious commentary, that's a huge bummer. That is really horrible that that's the case. But like, that's the social construct that we all sit in. Um, so please, to make it sort of obvious and apparent here, you're the best judgment of your own situation. We're talking here on a podcast to a lot of different people from a lot of different backgrounds, and you're going to have much more information about what to take and what to leave from this conversation than we could possibly generalize out to everyone who's hearing it. So I'm glad that we're doing this kind of reinforcement at the end of the importance of being attentive to your own needs. And underneath that, your own safety, whether that's emotional safety or it is your literal physical safety. There are relationships where we should not be attuned listeners. There are relationships where our job is to find separation from other people. So the context of all of this is with your chosen selected people that you want to offer this to. And also maybe the ways in which you can start to identify the relationships in your life where these things are present versus the ones where they're absent. So you can make kind of better choices about which ones to invest in and which ones to maybe leave behind. So, okay, I think that that's a good bow on everything. How does that feel to you, Dad? I'm really glad we talked about it. And it's it's interesting to realize that privilege, I think Tennessee Coates defined it this way, and I hope I'm pronouncing his first name correctly. Privilege is not having to take things into account. Mm -hmm. And I was just reflecting on the ways in which when I drop into kind of a tuned, emotionally available listening, one, I get credit unfairly Absolutely, because totally. I'm a dude. You're a white dude. And yeah. dudes mm -hmm. are not always the greatest at that kind of listening, <laughs> if I can make a generalization <laughs> with some exceptions, I'm sure. And it's unfair. It's unfair. Mm -hmm. It's like a dad who can sit quietly, slow his breathing and heart rate, and a baby stops crying as a result. Wow, that dad's going to get all kinds of credit, or a guy might. And I suspect a, a woman wouldn't necessarily get. So there's that part. And then also just reflecting on the ways in which people tend not to take advantage of my own listening and careful listening. Mm -hmm. And I yeah, think totally. that's not always the case for someone who doesn't wear my shell as it were, with all the social signifiers that go with it. So I think it's a very important thing to reflect on. That said, yeah, if those dynamics, power dynamics, socially constructed structural dynamics are kind of at bay or they're, they're not significantly in the mix, then I think for sure the kind of discussion we've had about the fine print or the granularity, the finely grained aspects that really establish a foundation that feels good of relatedness. We definitely covered that, including in this kind of biologically situated also discussion of attention, availability, and responsiveness.
Awesome. I think that's a great kind of capstone to put on the whole conversation today. So today we talked about meeting our need for connection. There are all kinds of interactions that we have out in the world, potential moments of connection that are nice, but they don't really satisfy us. So what we drilled into today was how to have more satisfying interpersonal interactions. The focus of the conversation was really this idea of attunement. Good attunement is an absolutely critical part of successful therapy because it helps build the bond between the therapist and the client. The therapist needs to have a sense of their client's emotional state. The therapist needs to be able to regulate themselves and, to an extent, the client as well. And they need to be reactive and responsive to the client's emotional needs. Rick was basically a professional attuner for about 35 years when he was working full-time as a clinician. Rick built essentially a three-part model for attuning to another person. Rick essentially described good attunement as having three characteristics, attention, availability, and responsiveness. We want to give our whole undivided attention to another person if we really want to attune to them. There might be some other minor task that's going on in the background, whether we're driving a car or maybe we have to cook some food or whatever. But in general, the focus of our attention is what the other person is saying. And there are a lot of consequences for the loss of attention. You can see this during more normal times and playgrounds throughout the country where there is a child and a parent and the parents may be given that kid, oh, 5% of their attention. From there, availability. Are you particularly emotionally available to another person? Are you open to having your own internal state shift and change based on their emotions and based on what they want from you? Is there a kind of dance that's happening between the two people? Are you really listening to them or are you just waiting for your opportunity to speak? And then finally, responsiveness. This actually took us down a bit of a co-regulation rabbit hole where Rick pushed back on some elements of it a little bit, but generally speaking, our interactions are systems. Two people come into the interaction together and they change each other in different ways through the interaction. There are little things that I do to regulate my partner. There are little things they do to regulate me. And a lot of this isn't really deliberate or conscious. It's subconscious. It's just what we do as big human animals. One of the questions that Rick offered having to do with responsiveness is, what would things look like if you really got what you want here? And I think that that's a wonderful question, not only for our conversational partner, but also for ourselves. And it returns to the whole conversation that we had on needs. What do you want and what do you need from this moment of connection or this connective partner? Relating to that, we close the conversation by really re-emphasizing for me what is the foundation of this whole thing. You only do this. You only attune. You only offer your emotionality. You only become responsive to somebody who, frankly, deserves it someone who you feel safe with, somebody who you feel is not going to exploit you. And sometimes it's a lot easier to offer these things if you are in a position of power and privilege than it is if you are not. As I said toward the end, I can be quite confident offering my attunement to another person because I am equally confident that they're not going to take advantage of me in a way that I do not want. And that is the foundation for the whole conversation. You get to choose about who you offer this to. 
and you also get to choose about who you request it from. When there aren't costs to offering it, of course, we can offer it to everyone, and through that, we can be just a remarkable resource for other people. But please, first, be attentive to your own needs, and it's really good to draw healthy boundaries with other people. So if you've been enjoying the podcast, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. Talking about platforms, I have a new YouTube channel. You can find it through the link in the description of today's podcast. And I recently posted a new video focused on some very famous social science research and some of the problems with it. I'm still experimenting with the channel, and I'd love to get some feedback on the kinds of content that people would like to see from it in the future. If you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple cups of coffee a month, you can support the show and receive a variety of bonuses in return. I hope you enjoyed this episode focused on attunement. If you'd like to let us know what you think about the podcast, or hey, if you have an idea for a future episode, feel free to send it in to contact at beingwellpodcast.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.